Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Boy, do we have a good one in store for you today. Hopefully, last evening, uh, you were part of our announcement of the Call of the Uplands campaign. If you if you weren't part of that announcement, that's okay. You can go back, watch the video, watch the film online. But hopefully, you caught it last night because it is something this this announcement, this campaign that uh, that's called the Call of the Uplands has captivated the imagination inside the organization for the better part of three years. And it has been the, the, uh, the secret that we've held so close to the vest and we finally get to shout it from the mountaintops. Um, this is the largest endeavor Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever has ever kicked off. So let me put this into, into perspective with a little bit of um, statistical breakdown. And we won't, we won't dive into numbers too far today, but I think it, it gives a good starting point for why this campaign is so important to the uplands, to the passions, to the landscapes, and to the heritage that we all care about. So consider for a moment. Since 2009, the United States of America has lost 53 million, 53 million acres of grasslands. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the size, an area the size of Kansas that we've lost in 12 years. That's gone. Those are no longer homes for quail, for pheasants for pollinators, for mule deer, for whitetails, for turkeys, for ducks, or for us to go explore. 53 million acres. Only 5% of the country's original prairie landscape is left. In quail country, you know this is even worse. Only 3% of America's longleaf pine, land, pine woodlands the prime bobwhite quail habitat is still intact. The lands we love are changing. They're changing before our eyes. Not our parents' generations, not our grandparents' generations, our generation. Wildlife habitat is disappearing before our eyes. We've all seen it. We've seen the sloughs being burned. We've seen the, the progression of urban sprawl the loss of our habitat, the loss of our prairies, our grasslands, our savannas, our sagebrush lands, our rangelands, and with it, the pheasants, quail, pollinators, sage grouse, monarchs, everything we cherish, the access to these places, everything we cherish hangs in the balance today, our generation. But last night, Last night, we announced the solution 
the call of the Uplands campaign. It's our line in the sand. It's our rally cry. And it is our pheasants forever, quail forever, and you. It is our moment in time to change the course of history, the upland history that is so integral. It's a part of the fabric of who we all are. So today on this episode of On the Wing podcast, we are going to continue to unveil the campaign that, you know, in, in development terms, philanthropic terms, and I know that we got a bunch of listeners out there that that know that work for charities and are are part of the um, fundraising world. They know that what we've been in is the quote unquote quiet phase. Well, last night we went public, and we're going to continue to go public today uh, with this episode. We have this two of the stars of our film joining us in Bethany Herb and Steve Schaefer. And we have the person behind the campaign who has been quietly leading it for the better part of three years, David Bue, our chief development officer and the campaign quarterback. So as we as we break down the campaign, let's first meet our participants for this episode of On the Wing Podcast. So we'll start with Bethany. Um, Bethany has been on the podcast before. It's been, gosh, Bethany, it's probably been a year. We, mm -hmm. we, it, it was the, the famous Potomac fever episode. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> we talked about, uh, the farm bill, but for listeners that, um, may not know you, you're our government affairs representative living in Washington, D.C., in the Beltway, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, every single day fighting for conservation policy and fighting for the uplands. And, you know, one thing that folks who watched the film last night saw, the campaign is broke down and organized into three organization pillars. We have advocacy, the work we do in, in Washington, D.C., and in the capitals around the country, state capitals. So that's number one, education and outreach, um, engaging new audiences and a new generation in the Uplands is number two. And the granddaddy of them all, <laughs> not the Rose Bowl, but Habitat, the overarching umbrella and mission of our organization. Um, Bethany, you represented the advocacy component. So so tell us a little bit about your background and um, um Knowing that uh, that you work in government affairs, um, give give folks a little bit about where you grew up and what you do for the organization. Sure. Um, well, thanks for inviting me to join, and love doing these podcasts with you, Bob. They're always fun, and and we always have a good time and a little banter. And um, for those listening, I hope everybody got the opportunity to watch our video, "The Call of the Uplands." And if you haven't done it, uh, please do so. Um, <laughs> I'm in it and it made me cry. Like I didn't know <laughs> I didn't know where I was gonna be in it. I had no clue until I saw it, but I started watching it and was just like, I gotta do something for the uplands now. <laughs> like, um, it's just it, it was just it pulls at your heartstrings and it's an incredible mm -hmm. motivator to be part of this effort, the call of the uplands. Like, we all gotta get in this together now and fight for some change. Um, so a little bit about my background. Uh, I grew up on a cattle ranch in Southwest Montana, born and raised. Um, most of my childhood was, I mean, 
I can rope and ride and doctor yearlings and um, <laughs> love the outdoors. And, you know, as far as like, you know, sage grouse, it was like, that'll get sage grouse are what get you bucked off the cold. Like they do, they mm. fly up, they hold. And so, um, it just, I grew up on the land. I love the beautiful open outdoors, beautiful landscapes. Um, freedom, man. And I ended up in Washington 16 years ago as an intern on Capitol Hill for then Senator Conrad Burns and ended up staying. And it, it, you know, not, not whatever planned. I thought I was gonna be a horse trainer, but, um, I, I got involved <laughs> in, um, in work in, in conservation and agriculture policy and environmental policy. I mean, they're all interconnected and I've continued to do that for, well, over 16 years now. Um, it's given me a really cool perspective in life because while I consider myself a country girl, uh, for my adult life, I've been an urbanite. And so I straddle this line between rural and urban, and there's a huge divide. And part of what the call of the uplands does is it appeals to people that don't traditionally um, take part in what we do of hunting upland birds. And um, I think it's just, it's beautiful and it's broadly appealing. And, um, and so, work in Washington is to relate the interests of rural America to Capitol Hill, some of which represent urban America, a lot don't. And to take the message from rural and translate it to urban and urban back to rural. And so I've been doing that for almost four years now with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. And I think as we move forward a little bit more, we'll talk about some of those policies, but that's mm -hmm. enough about me for now. No, we, you're right, Al. We will come back and talk about some of the policies uh, you know, our, our, our dreams for how to influence the uplands through advocacy. So we'll, we'll circle back. Um, well, we'll introduce now the, another star of the, of the film last night in a long time volunteer chapter volunteer with the organization who has stepped up throughout the, the entirety of the campaign as our, campaign chair of the campaign steering committee um steve schaefer if you've been to pheasant fest you, you likely know steve he makes the rounds he's hosted events he's a really personable magnanimous gentleman and that came through loud and clear uh last evening during the film um steve thank you so much for what you've given up to this point to the organization you're if for for purposes of the Film and for our discussion today, you'll be representing the education and outreach component of our of our campaign. But tell us a little bit about your background and, and why why you are the voice of uh, education and outreach when it, when people think about our organization. Wow, Bob, you're great for my ego. Thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I'm still wondering about the comment with David being the quarterback because you know when you say quarterback, being a Tampa Bay Bucks fan. You know, Tom Brady comes to mind, and I don't correlate the two together. But we're going to give David a great pass on that one because he's done a wonderful job leading our committee and leading our uh, campaign. So I got involved with uh, PFQF. Uh, I, you guys could correct me, but I think it was 10 years ago at the Pheasant Fest in Kansas City. Mm. And how that came about was I was involved with some other conservation organizations, but I had grown up um, hunting quail. And where I grew up below Tampa, Florida, a small town named Palmetto, mm. we would uh, jump in the truck with my dad, throw the dogs in the back and just drive down the road. And he'd say, you know, this looks like a good place. Let's start here. We'd throw the dogs out. There were no trespassing signs. There were no fences, nothing. And we had great hunts doing that. 
Well, that's long since passed. And uh, kind of just looking at my kids and where they were going in life and what was happening, I said, you know, I, I want to get involved in something that I can really make a difference in. And so I had uh, somebody, I had met a, a PF volunteer in the Atlanta airport. And mm. I love telling this story because we're sitting there talking and he says, Hey man, you want to buy a raffle ticket from me? (laughs) Of course. And I said, pulled him out of my pocket and said, if you'll buy one for me. And so our deal was that if whoever won, you had to go to their banquet to pick up your prize. So he called me like three months later, Hey man, you won. So I've got to come to to Lansing, Michigan. And so I went there, uh, met great people and, it was just, it was a wonderful experience. And so I got involved just by going to the first Pheasant Fest and met all kinds of great like-minded people. I always say, if you've got a crowd of people that love bird dogs, bird hunting and shotguns, what better crowd could you have? Yeah, what it is. I mean, it's just a wonderful organization from that standpoint. So that kind of started my involvement with you, uh, with the group. I, I met um, Rich Wissink, who was then in charge. So I got to ask what you won. And let's give a shout out to the person who sold you a raffle ticket in an airport. Do you remember the name? Uh, I do. I just went blank on it completely. If you hadn't asked me, he ran the chapter forever. Was um, it uh, Ballard? Uh, what was his first name? Um, oh, he, he's a financial planner. Yeah. Um, Ballard. Is, yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, and I won a uh, Ruger 357 Magnum. <laughs> oh, wow. So, yeah, it was pretty good. And then, uh, so I got involved and I met Rich Wissink uh, mm. at the fest and I, I had a real passion for the youth programs in particular and getting other people involved outdoors that normally weren't there. That's kind of spent my whole life with my kids doing that with friends and that kind of thing. So that just started the process. I just fell in love with the organization. I mean, what other show do you go to and you walk around and there's bird dogs everywhere, you know, and on, on crates and stuff for dogs and, guns. I mean, it's just a wonderful experience. And uh, so I went and actually started helping with their National Youth Leadership Council for a while. And that led into some other opportunities to work with the organization. And then I guess about four years ago, I got a call from Rich Wissink first and David View and said, hey, would you consider serving on this committee? It's the committee to see if we want to have a committee to do a fundraising campaign. And uh, I was like, yeah, whatever, you know, it sounds good. So we uh, we had that and that committee was a great, great experience to determine, hey, we're losing something here. We're losing our uplands. And I am incredibly passionate about that. I mean, I can get emotional. I will go at it because we are losing it. I've already seen it in my lifetime where I lost what we had quail hunting. And you you just can't find that anymore. And then I go out west every year, hunt sharp-tailed grouse, hunt pheasant, hunt Hungarians, and uh, rough grouse and woodcock and mm-hmm. all of it. And I, and I hate seeing us lose this. So that's a big part of why I'm in it. I want my grandkids to have the same experiences that I had. And the only way for that to happen is for us to save what we're losing now. Um, so that's my role. Sorry, I went on a little bit long there. No, I got involved in, And uh, I live right now in Tallahassee, Florida, which is in the heart of the Red Hills region. And if you're familiar with that at all, you know, Tall Timbers is here, great resource organization for quail, uh, all the plantations around. And it's, it, it's truly Red Hills. I mean, it, there's, there's on the private plantations, a lot of quail, but there's a lot of great work done here to further the quail habitat. And in every good film, there's a line that reverberates in your, in your brain for weeks on end, 
right? Like a few good men is you can't handle the truth, right? <laughs> That's right. Uh, or a, a Jerry Maguire, show me the money, right? I mean, there, there's always a line that carries on forever. And you had the line for me in in the film last night. And you 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 broached it a moment ago, but the line is don't let this die. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a that it's the call to action for all of us. And the moment in time is right now. It's our generation. So I mean it just that the because I've watched the entire progression of the film, right? From the the B-roll to the, the first version, the 36th version, the 58th <laughs> version, right? Yeah, yeah. But, but don't let this die has always and, been through there. And Bob, that's the thing. What everyone has to understand is it's not tomorrow, it's today. It's now. Mm-hmm. What you just said, how many does that 53 million acres, what does that equate to per day? Mm-hmm. You know, if you do an average and we're losing it today, but we can stop it today. Yeah. And that's today a lot of what the campaign is about, is about stopping that. You're right. Today is about stopping it. Today is about hope. Today is taking your words, don't let this die, and making it our motto. Yeah. All right. The Tom, are we really going to say the Tom Brady? Of I like it. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so that that would mean that Robin, his lovely bride, is the Giselle. Uh, so I, I'll earn some points there, probably, right? Yeah, you will. Well, Bob, <laughs> that analogy is definitely he outkicked his coverage. Well, that there's truth there. There's truth there. So we're setting them up. Um, David Bude, Chief Development Officer for the organization, uh, for the purpose of this purposes of this conversation. He'll be speaking to the habitat component, uh, the habitat pillar of the campaign, um, ultimately overarching um, initiative of Call the Uplands. But first off, we'll let him get a word in edgewise rather than taking shots at him. Uh, David, welcome to your first ever podcast. Uh, Go ahead and introduce yourself to, to our listeners. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, this is this is a lot of fun. Uh, I'm a bird hunter, uh, just like uh, the four of you, um, passionate bird hunter, grew up in a bird hunting family. Um, I would basically call it an obsession for nature in the outdoors, uh, like you guys uh, having bird dogs. I have, I have two uh, youngsters, a couple of pointers, Vishlas, uh, Scout and Ruby, and um, yeah, just... Uh, just so proud of what we kicked off last night. This is a exciting time for Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Um, it's also a moment in time that's just absolutely critical. Um, my role with the organization as Chief Development Officer, I oversee our fundraising programs, um, work with uh, uh, individuals across the country um, with a lot of plan giving efforts, um, work with our foundations and also oversee our, our grant development program, which is really the fuel of what we do um, in a lot of areas across the country and working with our strategic partners and government agencies and things like that. So yeah, this, this is a, a great conversation happening here now. I'm uh, 
in my office overlooking the North Shore of Lake Superior, live right outside of Knife River, Minnesota. And um, yeah, just excited to uh, talk more about this, this special campaign and initiative here today. And, you know, you, you live in northern Minnesota, but you have um, roots in southern Minnesota and a longstanding family um, connection with Nebraska. Um, tell us a little bit about um, kind of your, your background there. Yeah, sure. Grew up in Austin, Minnesota, best known as the place where they make spam. <laughs> uh, on the Minnesota-Iowa border. <laughs> and uh, yeah, our, uh, our family owns a, a little hunt, uh, bird hunting shack in south central Nebraska. It's been uh, in the family since uh, the early 1960s. Just a, a great family tradition. Uh, we we visit that that place several times during the bird hunting season and have gotten to know the people in the community and a lot of the farmers down there. And it's uh, it's what you would say, it's in the blood. And hmm. for folks that have ever called you on the phone before, it, uh -huh. you have a you have a really unique. So we're going to talk about your own personal brand. In my mind, you're going to forever be linked with John Denver because <laughs> you're you're. Your call waiting is always a John Denver song, and your original. Um, when I first met you, your dogs Denver and Aspen, you know, which uh, is a connection to Colorado. What's so I don't know that I've ever asked you what is the connection to to John Denver. You know, I always liked um, John Denver's connection to the outdoors, hmm. and if you listen to his music, it it kind of gets to the soul of what we love about the outdoors, country roads, Rocky Mountain High, you know, things like that. Denver was named after John Denver, Aspen, where John Denver lived. So yeah, there were some connections there for sure. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty fun. It, it's, um, as you know, I'm a, um, I love uh, digging deep into bird dog names because the, the creativity that people put in behind some of them I mean, it just shows the, you know, the emotional connection that we all have to to these bird dogs, and uh, the the deeper the story, the better. All right. So as as we transition to the to the meat of our conversation, conversation, I'll add a little bit more detail here, and and then we'll talk about the three pillars we mentioned. But so so one of the things that I struggled with as I worked on kind of the, the outline for this podcast is how to address a fundraising campaign around the dollars. And, you know, the, this campaign, like any of your favorite charities, whether it's, you know, folks know I'm a, I'm a diabetic, right? Whether it's American Diabetes Association, the find a cure for diabetes or American Cancer Society or, or, Boys and Girls Club, your favorite church. You got to remember, and, and this is something that our organization folks don't automatically think about and categorize Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever as a charity. But we are. We're a 501c3 nonprofit, meaning our entire mission is dependent upon you, it's dependent upon our members. The listeners to get engaged, fundraise. Your commitment as members, as donors, helps us achieve our goal. This campaign is elevating that entire 
mission through a $500 million pledge, right? We want to deliver the uplands, but we need $500 million, one half a billion dollars to make this reality, this dream of protecting our uplands come true. So we're not going to be shy about asking for money, just like the Girl Scouts, just like your favorite church or medical charity. This is a philanthropic campaign to protect what you care about so intimately as a part of the fabric of who you are, the uplands. So we're going to talk deeper about habitat, pheasants, quail, and future generations, because that's our mission and it's our vision for the future. So let's let's start with with the big one, the biggest of the three, and that's habitat. We are, as our slogan says, we are the habitat organization. Um, the campaign sets out to address nine million acres of habitat over the course of this campaign. David, add a little color to to what that means, because so often. We talk about a number, 9 million acres or 75,000 acres of access. But what's that mean in, in reality to the listeners? What are we after there? Yeah, it's a big number. Here's a bigger one. And you kicked off the show sharing some statistics. Um, this is a scary one if you think about it. For, for the listeners that have ever been out to Yellowstone National Park and you think of the breadth of that awesome national park, that treasure. In the past 150 years, we've lost 290 million acres of grassland habitat. That's habitat that's necessary for pheasants and quail. That's equivalent to 130 Yellowstone National Parks. Hmm. It's humongous. Mm -hmm. So Bob, when you mentioned there's only 5% of Americans uplands left, you think about what we've lost and and that's why I say earlier, this is a defining moment in time, not just for pheasants forever and quail forever, but for all all bird hunters and 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 rural communities that that benefit from this this great tradition. Um, it's it's something very significant at stake. So yeah, we're drawing a line in the sand. This is it. Mm -hmm. And our our overlying objective of impacting 9 million acres of strategic upland habitat over the next several years is what this is all about. You know, I think back to Steve, you know, a few years ago when we were putting this uh, campaign steering committee together and all the work that went into our strategic plan at the time and working with our team of biologists across the country and we identified over 400 strategic science-based initiatives that we felt were gonna be critical to save the uplands. Now, yeah, that was gonna take some money to pull that all together. Um, but Bob, to answer your question, that's how we're gonna impact 9 million acres, through science, through strategy, a lot of uh, work in Washington, D.C. that Bethany's mm -hmm. gonna to touch on here in a little bit, but it's, it's, uh, it's, it's just so, so important. At the same time, you mentioned 75,000 acres, Bob. Can you imagine this? One of our big habitat goals throughout this campaign is to permanently protect 75,000 acres of upland habitat. 
Much of that will be open to the public. And we're working on some pretty, uh, pretty exciting projects right now that if they come together would just be uh, just monumental for all upland bird hunters out there. So, yep, we're the habitat organization and you know all trails right now for Call of the Uplands lead back to the work we need to do for upland habitat. Yeah, we'll we'll get into as you alluded to um some of the successes that have already um happened during as I mentioned this, you know, we've been in a quote-unquote quiet phase for a while, so we've got some good things that are already under our belt and some Oh, I just, you know how badly I want to talk about some of the other things that, yeah, that are in the works. Um, but rest assured, our listeners should be incredibly excited about some of the things that are that are working. I, just to spend one more moment on kind of the background, you talked to, uh, in terms of the habitat pillar. You talked about being science-based. And what listeners may or may not know about is there is a national pheasant plan that um, state agencies. So you're, you're wherever you live, Montana game fish and parks, South Dakota game fish and parks, Minnesota DNR, they're in the pheasant range. There's a plan that is built up to a national, uh, plan that is science based on how to, uh, produce roosters and hens, most importantly, hens, um, through habitat initiatives across the country. Similarly, there's an NBCI, National Bob White Conservation Initiative, on, on the quail side of things, um, where states in the quail range have very strategic science-based focal areas that um, mix a private and a public land that lays out the plan. Right, the research has been done. The plan has been written. The roadmap exists. Our organization's role is to help deliver the the follow through on the roadmap. We're the dirty end of the shovel. We we help create the habitat for both the pheasant plan and the quail plan. That's where the money comes in. That's the execution of the link between those plans and putting upland habitat on the ground in a science-based manner. So I miss anything there, David. That's that's kind of the back backstory too, right? Yeah, that's a that's a great summary. It, it maybe just to add on that as well, uh, you know, as as part of this uh, campaign, we're going to be working very closely with uh, with a lot of our state partners as well that have individual state upland plans um, with strategic focus areas that we can we can work towards expanding and doing uh, restoration work within them. Again, all tying it back to science that ultimately will create more wildlife habitat and more pheasants and quail. Yeah, and sage grouse and lesser prairie chickens. Because uh, as, right as listeners who have religious podcasters know, you know, we're intimately involved with the sage grouse initiative, the lesser prairie chicken initiative. And, and while there might not be a great a greater prairie chicken initiative or, or sharp tails or huns, all the habitat that we work on uh, benefits all those prairie birds as well, uh, including pollinators and monarchs, which listeners know we've, we've spent a ton of time um, making the connection between our upland habitat and the healthy ecosystem for pollinators, monarch butterflies, and just connecting the, the dots for the entirety of the web of life. 
as I move to the second pillar, it there obviously all three of these are intertwined and and feed up to the entirety of your organization's mission. Um, but advocacy, the second pillar in habitat are go hand in hand. I mean, it's it's left hand, right hand, right brain, left brain. They they one doesn't exist without the other in 2021. Um, Bethany, as as the government affairs person and and the film representative of uh, advocacy, you talked about the need to raise our voice, but put into words what uh, what that means to you, what where we are today, and in. Um, what we need to be doing differently than, say, the past three decades? Well, I think people feel like they're not being heard. And I, you know, I, I just want to reinforce that when you make a phone call or send a letter or show up at a town hall, um, you're being heard. You're a voter. You're a constituent. So when you bring your message to your elected official, um, even if it's one of many, you're being heard. And repetition matters. So the more times you call and contact and email, even though it just seems obnoxious, just be obnoxious because we have mm. to be. We have to be loud. Um, there are many, many, many well-financed um, businesses, et cetera, in Washington that have lobbyists all across the spectrum. And being that we fight for conservation, it takes each and every one of us. Our power is in numbers. And if... If folks listen, you know, I'll, I'll point listeners to the podcast we did uh, last summer with Dave Nompson. And I, I wanted to take a moment and just recognize how amazing of a position that Dave has set us up for as an organization with mm -hmm. respect, with respect and credibility in a voice in Washington, D.C. We wouldn't, you know, Jim Inglis and Bethany, who are our, our voices today. And, you know, we have a seat at the table because of the people that came before us, the, the Joe Dugans, the Rick Youngs, the Dave Nompsons. Um, so a credit, you know, and the list goes on and on, Jeff Finger, sure Dennis Anderson. Um, but, you know, as we talk about government affairs, you know, I'm looking at some of our campaign documents and we have an incredibly impressive roster of initiatives that together will deliver a monumental impact on the landscape. And we can spend, <laughs> honestly, we could spend a podcast at least on each one of these. So without, without um, um, doing that all in this particular episode, <laughs> I do want, I do want to hit on a couple of the significant ones, particularly some of the newer names that, so I, I'm going to go down the list here and um, Bethany kind of give our listeners an overview of what the legislation is or the initiative is. And, and then that'll help illustrate how it fits into the campaign. So the, the first one that that's in, in, in my mind is, and it's probably the newest one, it's 30 by 30. So mm -hmm. um, give listeners maybe have seen it on our social media, maybe in a blog, maybe seen it in, in a, you know, a Wall Street Journal article. Tell us what uh, what we need to know about 30 by 30 today. OK, 
Well, this um, 30 by 30 is, is kind of a, it's, it's going to be the guiding policy, overarching policy for the ones that we're going to reference below. And it is a, um, it was an executive order released in mid-January um, by the new president, President Biden. And it calls for America to conserve 30% of land and water by 2030. Um, it's visionary. It's big. Um, the secretaries of agriculture, interior, and commerce have 90 days to come up with a recommendation. Hmm. And so the secretaries will then recommend to the White House how we reach this goal. So we've moved very fast to put our ideas on paper as to what that should look like. And first of all, it must be additive to rural America. It's got to be complementary to farming and ranching, voluntary, incentive-based. And so we're focusing on a lot of programs that we have traditionally, but have some new concepts as well. Um, 30 by 30 is part of um, a climate proposal. And we've known for a long time that if the, the White House changed and that um, Congress took a different color, that climate policy was going to be a big part of a new initiative. And so we wanted to be very careful that we were protective of rural America in this conversation and that, that nothing that was done for climate policy was done to make life more complicated for rural people, for rural economies. And I think we're in a very good place with our early conversations with the administration, both at USDA and DOI, that they understand that and that um, to do any sort of big uh, climate initiative. It's going to need to involve natural ecosystem solutions like what we do. It's got to be um, based on being inclusive to farming and ranching practices. And so we have a lot of opportunity as we move forward with 30 by 30. And to give a flavor of who else is involved, I mean, this is really a who's who partnership um, as we progress towards this initiative. The Congressional Sportsman's Foundation, um, Bass, American Sport Fishing Association, National Wild Turkey Federation, Rough Grouse Society, uh, TRCP, SCI. I mean, this is a um, this is a big coalition to move forward. Um, it, it, like you say, it's a landmark, um, visionary move that the entirety of the hunting, fishing, conservation community is is bought into and in, in, in making moves around. Yeah, and, and I really have to give credit to my colleague Jim Inglis on this because in the fall, this 30 by 30 concept started circulating and he made sure we got out front with those groups that you just mentioned that said, hey, if we're going to do anything to further conserve American lands and waters, sportsmen need to be in the center of this decision making and our interests need to be protected. So we were, as an organization and as a coalition, uh, proactive early on. And it's serendipitous because it lines up with what we're trying to do with our campaign. So there's just a lot of stars aligning right now um, that are making me really excited. <laughs> well, and as you, you talked about, 30 by 30 is kind of an umbrella for to build up to that. It's going to take a lot of different initiatives. So, so the second one on my list is also incredibly new. It's visionary and it's called the North American Grasslands Conservation Act. And I can see, as I even mentioned the name, Bethany just starts to glow and she starts to smile because this, this is a very exciting um, initiative, isn't it? Yes, but Bethany's also glowing because Bethany's reminding Bob we don't have a formal title to it yet. 
So I just want to be a little bit careful. It's a concept that we are working on and we are referring to it as the Grasslands Act um, because that's what we hope it will be called. But because it hasn't, the legislation hasn't dropped, it hasn't been named. So um, just a, well, a slight. So that's a great point. And listeners should should recognize the fact that this isn't, you know, sometimes we get criticized for quote unquote going along. Uh-huh. That's not that's not happening. I mean, this is something that, you know, no, we're inventing. Yeah, this is a group and, and we should recognize this is a coalition as well. And go ahead mm-hmm. and mention the 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 other organizations that that sure. came together and said we need something groundbreaking and that's where the name north american grasslands conservation act was born yeah um so you're right we came together with a few partners um and an op-ed was written for the hill to to be targeted to congress and and howard vincent our ceo um colin omara with the national wildlife federation uh with fosberg trcp uh, Becky Humphreys from the National Wild Turkey Federation and Jeff Crane with the Congressional Sportsman Foundation um, co-authored this op-ed calling for a national grasslands program similar to NACA. Um, so our little group started working uh, in late fall to put together some concepts, start looking at some numbers, and uh, you know a lot of it we had to see and wait and see what we had for uh, the election turnout. What was Congress going to look like? Because you can have the best policy in the world, but if you don't have the right political landscape, no go. So we had some concepts down on what we wanted to do, and we still do, and have begun our outreach to Capitol Hill, and are finding pretty good, uh, pretty good feedback, especially from the House side on on doing something. So I, I think it's likely we'll have a bill drafted and introduced um, sometime within the next three or four months. And then what process we take, um, you know, like the like NACA itself, I think it took probably over 10 years to accomplish. So, I mean, this is something that we could do within two years. It's something that might be more long term, but we are committed to working on it as are our partners. And we're going to have to keep working through Congress and find the right legislative vehicle and the right mechanism to, um, to enact it into public policy and law. So you mentioned uh, NACA a couple times as the the parallel um, sort of comparison. Just explain NACA so folks have a understanding of what we're comparing it to. Sorry, yeah, the North American Wetlands Conservation Act, which was designed to uh, protect and enhance wetlands and surrounding uh, grasslands or upland habitat. Mm-hmm. And so we as pheasants and quail benefit from it. And there's a NACA council, which Dave Nomson ser- has served on for a long time and serves on. And they select these projects. And there's a committee and it's vetted and it's in partnership with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So some of its habitat restoration, it can be easement. Um, it can be some acquisition. It's, it, it's a flexible model that allows for habitat conservation for wetlands. Mm-hmm. And so we're looking at something like that. Yeah. All right. Now, the bread and butter, which we built our name on from the advocacy perspective, and that's the farm bill. Um, let's talk about where we are today and where we want to go as it relates to, to the federal farm bill. Okay. Well, I think probably a lot of our members saw a recent um, extension of the current signup for CRP. Um, that was something that when we began to work on a transition memo between 
agencies or between administrations that we said was pretty important. They've also said that they're going to uh, revisit incentives and try and make the program more appealing for landowners and that probably go back potentially um, and maybe add some additional back compensation for those that signed up earlier. So we don't know anything for sure, but we're optimistic that CRP and its current status is that we're going to get closer to full enrollment. Beyond that, and our good friend, um, former representative Colin Peterson from Minnesota in the fall put out what's called a marker bill a 50 million acre CRP marker bill. And that was in, um, with our support, but with Dave Nomson's help getting, you know, getting it together. And he said in his press conference, you know, putting a marker bill out before the new Congress, like somebody has to reintroduce it. What are you doing? And he said, the point is to make a point Mm -hmm. that CRP is a really important tool. It works. It's been around a long time. We know how to administer it if we do it properly. And this is an incredible tool. Um, for carbon capture. And as we move into trying to come up with new solutions, he's like, I I just don't feel like we have to reinvent the wheel in this climate discussion because we already have an answer. We just need to do it. Mm -hmm. And we're really thankful for him doing that because we're going to continue to say, you know, a 50 million acre CRP is totally reasonable Mm -hmm. and perhaps beyond. And that's not something we could have said two or four years ago. I mean, it was difficult. And so, you know, the new... The new shape and the new landscape of conservation policy in Washington is, um, it's exciting. Well, and, and for listeners, the max enrollment would be 27 million acres under the current farm bill. So to get to 50 million is, is a tremendous gain if we could get there, considering that right now, as we sit here today, we're in danger of going underneath 20 million of CRP. Mm-hmm. So, so the program that has been the bread and butter of pheasant and bobwhite quail populations for, you know, two generations is in dire need of uh, some steroids. And, you know, that's really what we're, uh, we're looking to, we're looking to juice them in a good way, the juice in the federal farm bill and particularly CRP. But I think it's, Steroids, yeah, steroids, but it really, we needed a, um, almost a rebranding of the program because we've talked about it in a certain way for so long and it only resonates with people that think like us, that, that look like us and that come from our background. And so we've, we've known for a while that the messaging on Capitol Hill needed to change around it. We didn't need to change the program or what it did, but we need to talk about it in a way that was more appealing to legislators that don't live or work in rural America and to people that don't live and work in rural America. So when you start talking about soil quality, wildfire mitigation, carbon sequestration, and and we always have before, but we're bringing those arguments higher up to the front. Mm -hmm. And yes, they're going to continue to do the things we that we care about, produce pheasants and quail, pollinators. That's not going to change. We're just, we're taking this opportunity, this serendipitous opportunity with a different Congress to say, we've got the answer. We've always had it, but maybe we haven't articulated it quite the right way. Yeah. Well, and when I think about steroids, what I was thinking about is making it, <laughs> well, we won't go down that road. Major League Baseball? Yeah. Well, what I was thinking about, you know, we, we know that the program as it sits at the moment is not real competitive for a landowner's perspective. It needs an infusion of adjusted soil rental rates and, yes. and cost share. And, and we want this to be 
a successful decision for landowners, farmers, ranchers. Yep. And right now it it needs to be adjusted. And and my steroid analogy might not be the best one, but uh, at least that's what, where my head was at. Um, yeah. As we talk about the farm bill, we, we always, we, we spend a lot of time on CRP, but there are a lot of other programs that are part of the farm bill. And I want to, I want to touch into those, but I also want to spend a moment. What, what, one of the things that I think is beautiful and magical about our organization is our combination of public land conservation approach and private land conservation approach. I, I, mm-hmm. and, and I'm biased, granted, um, but I think that we have the best recipe going. You know, we, we have the ability to buy land and make, you know, work with state agencies, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, and it becomes waterfall production areas or wildlife management areas because of the beauty of our chapter model and the funding structure that we, we have with programs like build a wildlife area or, or people leaving property in their wills and estates. And we, we can make that public access. And then on the flip side, we have... Um, 270 biologists working for our organization that work in hand in hand with the U.S. Department of Agriculture and with farmers, ranchers, and landowners to find, uh, you know, financially positive ways to insert habitat in every farm approach to their land. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the private land side, and to me. So that's magical. And then the special sauce comes where you you overlap the two. And what I'm referring to is is the acronym VPA HIP, Voluntary Mm -hmm. Public Access Habitat Incentives Program, where it takes private land and opens up access through walk-in programs. Like for for hardcore bird hunters, they know it as Weehaw in Kansas. They know it as IHAP. WIA, uh, plots, all of those of so many favorite state-driven walk-in programs are built on the shoulders of CRP. So where where does that stand today, the walk-in programs? Um, we'll get to that in just a second, but I wanted to kind of follow up on an earlier point that you made about how we're kind of magical. We're, we're in the sweet spot of conservation because we we go to conservation. We do conservation where it can be done. And so that is some private land, some public, mixture of both. And it's such a fun place, organization to be a part of because um, we're encouraged to be dynamic and creative and nimble um, as staff. And so that we get the opportunity to be like, you know, we can do something a new way. Mm-hmm. And we will continue to as we evolve. And um, yeah, that's a, to kind oh, of- that, that's a terrific point because Brad Bradley, the other um, star of our film last night, made the comment, Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever is the right organization at the right time with the right approach. And that illustrates your point about being nimble in Washington, D.C. We're nothing. We're nothing if we're not nimble right now because yeah. it's. It changes by the day. Yeah. Sure does. Um, so as far as walk-in access programs, the, the acronym within the farm bill, I, it, Bob always laughs about that it's VIPA HIP. Um, <laughs> sounds like a, 
a flu strain, but it's called <laughs> Voluntary Public Access Habitat Improvement Program. And it's branded differently in each state. Weehaw is one of them. Um, but it's a farm bill funded program. And it's kind of a sleeper program in the farm bill. You don't hear a lot about it. So it pays landowners an incentive to voluntarily open up their land to public access to hunt. And um, again, totally voluntary. There's, it, there's a time frame for which the program exists. It's not in perpetuity. And it may be a circumstance where the landowner has CRP plus VIPA hip. So there's just added benefit. It may not. Um, but it's a really cool kind of sleeper program. And we'll continue to advocate for it in the next farm bill. And it's, it's something that I bring up because there's so many listeners, um, you know, me included, who exist, our, our hunting seasons exist on public land. And when, when we go down the road of CRP, Farm Bill, there's a tendency to tune out. And I want to make sure that our listeners don't tune out because the intersection of the Farm Bill and when we talk about CRP is the walk-in programs that we, that so many of us, um, particularly this year in a, in a pandemic, have found fresh opportunity. So so that that was the, just a, wanted to highlight that. Um, Beyond CRP, what are some of the things we're working on within Farm Bill legislation? We touched on Farm Bill, VIPA HIP. Um, you know, we're starting to get, again, and this is largely uh, Jim's area of expertise, but um, ASEP, ALE, RCPP, different easement programs, ag land easements. Um, Equip. Where will we... Equip, where will we fit into the crop insurance conservation compliance discussion? Um, that's a place we've had a lot of engagement in the past. And so we're, what, a little over two years out of a new farm bill, so we're a little less. Um, it, it's amazing how quickly it's coming again. It's it? amazing how quickly it goes, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, all right, before we leave the advocacy component, I want to hit upon the LWCF, Land and Water Conservation Fund. Um, it's something that, frankly, I don't think we have touted enough organizationally over the last couple of years, but we're intimately involved in, in that program and, and helped to get over the finish line here last fall. Mm -hmm. The Land and Water Conservation Fund has been around for since the 60s, and it's an offshore oil and gas revenue paid to onshore recreational opportunities. You know, a, a loss of a loss of nature adds to nature kind of concept. It's authorized at $900 million a year. It's rarely ever funded above $450 million a year. So for as long as I, as long as I can remember, um, it's been getting allocated about half the amount of money. And so it has seven different programs that it pays for between USDA and DOI. And it's it's a recreational funding source. So it can be everything from easements. It can be fee acquisition to create new spaces for hunters to hunt. Um, it can be historic facades, Civil War battlefields, um, even urban areas, playgrounds, swimming pools. So it has a broad range of recreational opportunity. Where I'm from in Southwest Montana, it pays for a lot of um, fishing access sites, mm. you know, boat ramps and stuff. So um, it's additive to the, to the recreational economy. And so we've tried for a long time to, to reauthorize it and fully fund it. And within the Great American Outdoors Act, which most people heard about, it was permanently reauthorized and fully funded, which is awesome. Big mm. conservation win in 2020. What it means now is that there's a lot more money that's going to come to stateside. 
And so that's where our involvement in working with the point person in each state that's determining the ranking, the SCORP plan, don't want to be too like acronym oriented, but um, to try and make sure that pheasants and quail are a priority within those projects that are put forward for consideration. And I think there's going to be a lot of opportunity for us with new money um, to influence a greater area of pheasant and quail habitat. So before we move on from advocacy, anything else you want to touch on that's that's moving in the the halls of Washington D.C. I mean, I've got more like the Recovering America's Wildlife Act drama, but I mean, this is getting so acronym laden. <laughs> <I'll, I'll, laughs> I will stop wonking out for now and pass it off to someone else. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's yeah. There there are a lot of acronyms. You 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 mentioned a couple of my favorites: VPA, HIP, and RCPP. There's a there's a song in there somewhere. But <laughs> it's got to be. <laughs> um, all right, Steve, when you said, don't let this die, I connected that immediately to education and outreach because I, as I mentioned, like kind of the core of our mission historically has been, you know, the habitat organization, habitat and advocacy. But it's sort of a moot point if there's nobody to grab the baton going forward. And that's that. That's the point of your comments, isn't it? Yes, very much so. You know, when you look at it, say you can have all this great, let's say we're incredibly successful and we get the 53 million acres or 50 million acres and everyone that's older now that hunts passes away, who's going to use it? Mm -hmm. What's there going to be? And, you know, I think uh, a lot of times people don't realize that we have wildlife because of hunters. Mm-hmm. If we didn't pay those fees for licenses, for taxes on ammunition and firearms and things, where would our wildlife be now? And But we've got to have a next generation coming up to take those places. We've got to have that next group that's that's teaching each other. This is what we do and this is how we do it. And Bob, I would say, you know, I have like the, the video. I had a tough time at, at points of not wearing my campaign committee chair hat. Um, and I wanted to talk about those things. And so I'm going to take a brief commercial here and say something that I don't typically hear on your podcast or some others is that, hey, for all your listeners, for all of our listeners, because we're all in this together, if you're not a member of the organization, you need to be. I mean, at basic, it's $35. and, and people can afford that. And you don't realize that how much import, or how important not only the membership dollars are, but the numbers as well. Bethany could probably speak to that a lot more. It's a lot better to go it, into a representative or center to say, you know, we have 50,000 50, members than it is to say we have 25,000 members. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a win on both sides, membership dollars and just the pure numbers of people. So um, as the campaign committee chair, I would also say that should be your starting point. Yeah. $35. You can go up from there. Hey, if you're saving to buy a new shotgun for next season and it's $2,000, save a little bit more and become a life member for a thousand or patron member, or even better, leave your farm to us. You know, we can, we can use that. We can make it into a great hunting wildlife area, or we can sell it. We I mean, there's all kinds of things we can do, but we need, we need the money as well. We need the people and we need the money. So, that was my 30 second commercial. You were going to say, well, I, I was going to, you know, so, so that's a wonderful 
call to action, right? That membership is incredibly, it, I mean, it is the lifeblood by which this organization lives. The other piece of it is, is being a chapter officer, being a volunteer. And, you, you know, you, you check so many boxes as a volunteer, as a member, as a, as a donor. I was just curious on a personal level, was there a moment in time or something that happened in your own life where the kind of the volunteer spirit struck you and you wanted to do something more? Oh, absolutely. I can tell you exactly what happened. My dad and I were down where I grew up uh, below Tampa and we drove through where we used to quail hunt and it's all subdivisions now. There's nothing. It's paved road. I mean, you saw the sporadic tree. I came back from that trip and a gentleman, one of my life mentors um, that taught me to turkey hunt. I, I walked in, I said, you know, just, we had just gotten back and he said, uh, so what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, you've been asking me to get involved with this organization and I'm going to jump in and do that. And at that point, I realized the only way for me to ensure and secure for my children and for their kids the opportunity to hunt, to fish, to camp, to enjoy the outdoors was right then. Mm -hmm. He said, I've got to get involved. It's on me. I can make a difference. One person can. And mm -hmm. I, I truly believe that. So any of the listeners out there right now, if you're not involved, if there's not a local chapter where you are, you can start one. If there is a local chapter, go get involved and don't say no, because it is up to you. It's, it's your responsibility. If it dies, it dies because of you. It's not going to die because of the four people that are on this podcast right now, because mm -hmm. I would say we're doing what we're supposed to do. And if there's any way, like Bethany said, after watching that video, I wanted to go out and do more. I'm like, let, there's got to be something else. We can do something else here. Let's get this thing going. We've got to, we've got to roll with it. So, and so that, yeah, so that, I remember that defining moment, but I also now see that my kids are involved. Um, they're 23 and 22 and they take action. They take their friends hunting. They take their kids, friends fishing. And it's not just about those two things. They've taught people how to enjoy the outdoors. Mm -hmm. That's really, I mean, at the end of the day, you have to say, it's not about what you harvest. It's not about what you catch. It's about the enjoyment of the outdoors and watching other people do it. I get more enjoyment out of that now. And, you know, it, it, so, you know, that goes back to the whole education or outreach. Somebody taught me to do it. I was fortunate enough that my dad did. Um, my kids were fortunate enough that I did and my dad taught them as well. But it's kind of when we talk about it in education outreach, it's what is the pathway to the outdoors? Mm -hmm. So we're all fortunate in that we had those opportunities. There are so many that don't. So like anything else in life, there are a lot of different pathways to get somewhere. So education and outreach, they do a phenomenal job. I'm going to highlight just a couple of the things just because they're maybe a, I'm a little more passionate about sure. it. The first one is the National Youth Leadership Council. My youngest son was involved in that. And that's how I got involved in the organization was helping them uh, put on one of the weekends. And you have all these young people in high school. I think there were a couple of might even been in middle school. And now they've graduated. They're graduating from college. They're getting married. And I watch what they've done. So this program actually takes uh, kids from around the country, local chapters, and puts them in an intensive training, leadership training. Cool. Now these kids are, you know, they're starting chapters themselves. Mm -hmm. They're raising money. They're contributing in this. They're becoming life members, but they're teaching others. 
this is how you get involved in the outdoors and this is why you get involved in the outdoors. Again, it's not about killing something. While we all enjoy that, we enjoy the harvest. It, there's so much more to it. Bethany, you're going to jump hey. in there. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to add to I'm super enthusiastic about the NYLC. And, and they come to D.C. other than COVID years once a year. And so they help us advocate for conservation in D.C. And it is so fun. They uh, they learn about policy, professionalism, advocacy. And the members of Congress, because they come and, and we teach them, they appreciate us more and respect our organization more for it. But I just, yeah, it, sorry to interrupt. It's a great point. And they, they go on and are now work for DNRs. And, you know, th this is their sends them on a career path that shapes who they are. I mean, it's been a tremendous program. Yeah. And, you know, the just at how many people they touch is amazing mm -hmm. to me. You know, it's just you, you have one and they'll have 10, 15, 20 friends that they've got involved in the outdoors as well. And that's what it's about. It has to start somewhere. And it's the whole path thing. Well, you know, because all of us have grown up in the outdoor world, so to speak. Well, what about those that mm -hmm. haven't? And kind of the next thing is the whole habitat education, in particular, the pollinator project, which I love because we have to have butterflies and we have to have bees. And to me, it's almost one of the unsung heroes of our organization, because it doesn't matter whether you're a, a sportsman from the standpoint of hunting and fishing, that type thing. It's you just have a passion and a love for the outdoors and want to see our food sources, mm -hmm. our clean air, clean water. Those things continue on so that we can all live and survive. But what a great opportunity, really, to have kids exposed to the outdoors. So they plant these pollinator projects and they see the butterflies and the bees show up. They get educated about why we have to have bees, why the monarch is so important. And at the end of the day, then it's like, okay, now all of a sudden we have a new and another advocate in that arena. Mm -hmm. It doesn't take much, I think, when you do that to move them on. You know, they may not ever become hunters, but they're not anti-hunting. Right. They may never become gun owners, but they're not anti-gun. They support the things. They understand why we do it. I think they have a better understanding of wildlife and what it means to take care of that wildlife. And it's us. It's our organization. It's other, our partner organizations that are doing that and helping that along. And then the 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 other one is in the hunting heritage. It's R3. What is that? And I'm going to hope I say this right. <laughs> Recruitment, retention, and reactivation. Bingo. And there, there we go. I, I was paying attention in class. Uh, but you know, the, the interesting part about that to me is the reactivation. And I never really thought about it because I'm still an active um, outdoorsman. And I was surprised at how many people fall out mm -hmm. of hunting because they don't have access, because they don't have the people to take them, the land to go to. And so, you know, when we talk about, look at this at the big picture and say, okay, what Bethany's doing in D.C., what Habitat is doing across the country with the, the local chapters to say, hey, now you have places to go. And so it's time to re-engage. It's time to reactivate that license so that we have those monies to pay for our care of our wildlife and things. So it's just a, it's a big circle. But, you know, again, and there the Education and Outreach Department has so many opportunities for a different path to the outdoors. And as local chapters, uh, our listeners today I hope that, you know, you will make your mind up to say, hey, I'm going to be a mentor to one person. It, it just takes one. Or you're going to be the one that says, hey, let's get this pollinator project started at our local school, at a, a local church, a local civic organization. It doesn't matter. Let's get it started and get it happening. And then also, hey, if you've got kids, 
um, or you know your chapter members or some look at the NYLC and there are other opportunities for leadership as well. But you've got a, lo a lot of opportunities to get involved and to make a difference. And you will if you get involved. So I'll, I'll remind listeners, you just listen to how passionate and knowledgeable Steve is. And I'll remind you, he's a volunteer. He does not get paid. He, he is a volunteer. He's a donor. He's a member. And this is all coming from his heart. Um, and it, the beautiful thing is Steve is not alone. There are thousands, well, maybe not thousands just like Steve, but there's some just tremendous people like Steve out there that are volunteers. So Steve, thank you so much for what you do. The other thing I'll mention is yeah, I think about Steve's role as a volunteer and you pheasant fest would have just happened and Steve posted it, posted on Facebook. And, you know, you can sense the satisfaction that Steve has in, in volunteering and, and you leaving something better for the next generation. I also know based on Facebook that Steve gets a tremendous amount of, uh, builds tremendous amount of friendships through this connection through this organization, like, you know, with Pheasant Fest not happening, I think you posted, you know, like there were 60 photos of different people that you miss seeing this year. Like this is, you know, your volunteer spirit has, has gone beyond just the mission. It's part of building the people you're closest to in, the, in, in life now, isn't it? Oh yeah. It's a lifestyle. I mean, you're right. February was a sad month. Yeah candidly. I mean, you, you look forward every year, you're going to see all these people that you might only see once a year, but when you see them, it's like you were never apart. And I missed that this year. I mean, it, I, I was sad. Yeah. And when I posted that on Facebook, there were a lot I didn't post, but it's just <laughs> like, yeah, this is a, this is a part of my life. It's a part of who I am. Those people are part of my life. They're great people. Yeah. You will make the best friends. I mean, I, I look at it now and just, there's, basically nowhere I can go in the country that there's not a fellow PF or QF -er, um, that will open their doors to you and say, yeah, come on, let's go have dinner. You can stay with us. Uh, let's go hunt. We can anything. It's just, come on, stay with us. And that, that's, that's, that's a, a big part of what it's about. That's a big statement. Wonderful people. Yeah. Wonderful people. All right. So we covered our three pillars of this call of the Uplands campaign, habitat, advocacy, education and outreach. And I mentioned, you know, we are now public, but there was a time where we were working behind the scenes on some of, of these efforts. So I want to, I want to go back to David and some things that we are able to talk about and share and some things that are in the works. Uh, give us a little bit of taste of, of what's happened so far in the campaign. Um, milestones of success stories for us, David. You bet. Well, several years ago, when we set some of these ambitious goals, uh, it was a bit scary. You know, we didn't we didn't really have all the answers of how we were going to pull things together. We knew we were going to need a lot of help. We knew we needed a few more Steve Schaefer's to you know, push us along and give us some passion and energy. And um, we've established some great momentum. It's it is really exciting. It's it's a great time to be associated with this organization. You know, Bob, one of the things that I know you're really excited about, um, and I am too, is the expansion of our Build a Wildlife Area program. That program, which 
started back in the days of, of, of Joe Dugan with, with his leadership in Minnesota and, and propelled so many great projects in states like Montana and Kansas and, and Iowa, certainly a ton in Minnesota. We're going to blow that thing up and take it nationwide. Yeah. And, um, you know, identifying the right projects, kind of back to that strategic science-based approach is really important. And so we've been working hard on that the last several years. I would say in the next several weeks, a couple of months, we'll be announcing some really great projects in states like South Carolina, Missouri, a couple of new ones in, in great areas of Iowa, uh, a, a real exciting one with a ton of potential in Oklahoma and Colorado. Our, our first ever build a wildlife area project in the state of South Dakota, which is which is really fun and, and we'll be uh, announcing that here in mid-March. Um, which will, I think, propel a great permanent habitat protection program in, in the Keystone state of, of South Dakota. So that's all exciting. That those All those projects provide public access to, mm -hmm. getting back to Steve's point about, you know, the next generation of hunters and outdoor enthusiasts. It's, uh, they're great projects, and it's just a great program. And you mentioned Joe Dugan, um, and he deserves a tremendous amount of credit, but I also want to shout out to Rob Driesline from Outdoor News, who was around that breakfast table and actually coined the name Build a Wildlife Area, as well as Chuck Delaney at Game Fair, one of our very early on National Board of Directors. Um, so I, I was maybe, I don't know, three months into my role with the organization sitting around that breakfast table when Joe, Rob, and Chuck conceptualized Build a Wildlife Area. So um, I, I think it goes to Steve's comments about volunteerism. You know, an idea that you could have eating a ham and egg omelet, you know, might end up creating, I think we're at right now, 14,000 acres of public access permanently on the landscape because of build a wildlife area. And it's going to explode through this campaign, as, as David mentioned. So sorry to cut you off, but I wanted to make sure that, you know, everybody has a role to play. And Chuck and Rob are great examples of, you know, they, they helped get a instrumental concept off the ground. Uh, what else, what else we got rolling, um, Dave? Well, I think also a, a great, uh, Thing that we've done to expand our conservation toolbox. Bethany touched on it briefly um, earlier in, in kind of her overview of some of the things we're working on in Washington, D.C., but um, we're now in the conservation easement business. And so that's become a great way for us also to permanently protect strategic upland habitats. Um, we've got a, just a phenomenal project we're working on in the state of Illinois that should be coming to, to a close here real soon and it'd be an exciting project in the heart of the Illinois quail range. Um, but here again, it's just a great tool for us to use, something we didn't do before the campaign that now we'll be able to deploy in a way to protect habitats for, for future generations as well. Yeah. Well, it, it ties into, well, it can't tie into easements. It can't tie into build a wildlife area. Uh, we have folks, and I won't single out any names because there are some sensitivities, um, but we have people that want to honor loved ones, whether it's through a philanthropic cash donation or what happens an awful lot is people want to leave land 
in uh, two pheasants forever, quail forever in a person's name. Um, and, you know, we are an organization, again, as a charity, that we can accept that land, we can help steward that land. Maybe it is an easement. Very frequently, you know, we can help uh, be a conduit to make that piece of property a, a wildlife management area for public access forever. And that happens um, more frequently than people probably realize, doesn't it, David? It really does. Uh, and those conversations are, are happening quite often nowadays. Um, you know, I, I've got an opportunity to work with a lot of farmers and ranchers across the country that they just don't have a succession plan for their property. And it's sometimes a little scary to try to figure out what to do to overcome that issue, um, but we can help. And um, we can do it in a great wildlife friendly manner. Um, there are some clever things we can do when kids are involved to help take care of them financially, but yet protect the family farm for, for wildlife and for the outdoor recreation components of it and things. So yeah, that that's, uh, you know, one of the challenges with uh, uh, our demographics is uh, hunters are, mm as a rule, an older audience getting older every year, but um, many of them have, you know, their rooster refuges mm -hmm. that they've, they've built up, but they own hunting property and things like that. But they, and they worked really hard to put quality habitat on those properties and lands and they don't have a plan for it after they're gone. And, and we can help with that. Or maybe they do have a dream, you know, a plan of their dreams because um, you're right, sometimes it's they, they might not have successors or a succession plan, but there's also a time or a, a group that wants to leave a legacy and has a dream. We can help you with that dream, too, where we can protect what you put blood, sweat and tears in so it lives on forever. And I mean, forever is in our name for a reason. And uh, uh, that's a pretty cool component. Um it really is. And, you know, uh, it reminds me of a couple that we worked with in Montana, Ellis and Jenny Meisner, who had that same dream for, for their property along the Teton River that ultimately will be able to help them protect that property and expand it to protect 10 miles of critical habitat in Montana, wow. Bethany, on the Teton River. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. And if folks uh, can actually watch a video of that property, just go to our website and you can Google Onyx Teton River. Onyx helped um, provide funding for the video creation. It was a build a wildlife area project, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And that particular Teton River project has pheasants, sharp tails, uh, huns, mule deer, pronghorn, moose, bear. Uh, grizzly bear grizzly bear i mean it's it's a i mean and there's a couple of montana oriented projects that you know we if you think about um, a couple years ago probably 12 years ago now i think 2007 um one of our projects was on the cover of national geographic in montana the coffee creek project which again wouldn't have happened without our members um, there is, there are some projects that are publicly accessible in Montana, Coffee Creek, Teton, Wolf Creek, that are absolutely bucket list lifetime destination. Actually, you go there once and it won't be a bucket list. It'll be an annual trip because it's just, they're just so darn magical. But it's a great illustration of, you know, to Bethany's point earlier, 
the flexibility of uh, the organization be able to take um, dollars, legislation, dreams, and making it come together in, in, in the form of wildlife habitat. Uh, before I transition to, to kind of a closing comments, closing thoughts section, David, I, I want to, you know, Steve gave a, a great call to action as a starting point. Become a member, renew your membership. That, that, that is so incredibly critical for our organization. That, and just to be completely transparent, right now, we're at about 125,000 members, give or, give or take. Um, we're 25,000 members below our, our all-time mark. We were just a hair shy of 150 a, a couple years ago. And, you know, 125 is not anything to sneeze at, but like most um, businesses in the COVID area, era, you know, when's the last time anybody went to a banquet? It's been tough. Um, we, we've had a challenge um, keeping our membership rolls up. And, and thankfully, we have just an unbelievable army of chapter volunteers out there who have paid it forward and, and helped um, renew memberships. We have, I think, something on the magnitude of 50 chapters that have helped bridge the gap. Um, so membership is critically important as a call to action. For folks that dare to dream, David, what's, what else, how else can they get involved in Call to the Upwards? Yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways, Bob. Um, you know, one thing to do is just to learn a little bit more about this Call of the Uplands campaign. Um, check out calloftheuplands.org and um, learn a little bit more about our strategic priorities of the campaign, whether it's education and outreach, some of our habitat initiatives or the work we're doing at state capitals or D.C. Um, membership is our lifeblood. We've got to get more people involved. Uh, whether it's a hunting buddy, a family member, or a friend, uh, we need more people involved in this crusade for the uplands. And then, you know, we all know people that probably could help make a difference, whether that's make a lifetime gift or protect their property or a place that they enjoy hunting on every year. Um, we've, we've probably all knocked on doors and got permission with people that um, have allowed people to enjoy their property and, and maybe they don't have a plan for their property and, and we can help with that as well. So, um, you know, I'd say what we need to do right now is stretch ourselves. The, the time is now. Um, we can't wait any longer to start really attacking the opportunity, mm -hmm. I guess, to protect, protect these uplands. Yeah, well said. If folks want to reach out to you and learn a little bit more about you know, Habitat Legacy Society, plan giving, um, how do they connect with you? Yeah, easily. You just, you can drop me an email at D as in David, B as in boy, UE at pheasantsforever.org. Or you can certainly give me a call at 218-340-5519. Perfect. All right. We're going to, we're going to go to closing thoughts and, and we'll start, we'll start with Steve and I, I, I'm, I'm hoping you, you weave in at the end, my favorite statement. <laughs> well, Bob, you can count on that because it is my mantra right now. And, you know, I would, in closing, I would say to all of our listeners, we're all in this together and we all can make a difference. 
We've got a great opportunity here with the call of the uplands to uh, really make a national impact on the uplands and even more so to make an impact on those that are involved in the uplands. So take a kid hunting, be a mentor, attend a banquet, uh, join as a member. If you're already a member, upgrade your membership, call David and leave your 50,000 acres to the organization. That would be awesome. But the key is, and Bob, I'm going to you on this one, is we can't let this die. And if we do, it's our fault. Hmm. And I don't want to be blamed for that in future generations. I want to make sure that my legacy that I leave behind is one that people know the outdoors is here because of the work that we've done. And this call of the uplands is step one. We're going to do even more after this. Outstanding. Yeah, I'm, I'm ready to run through a wall. I appreciate that. <laughs> Again, I'll say it. On behalf of the entirety of the organization, Steve, thank you for being a volunteer in everything you do. You're welcome. Hey, and you guys are awesome, too. <laughs> so if you don't know the staff there, they're incredible people. They're just as passionate as I am. Um, and they do so much incredible work that people never even hear of or see. And I wish we could toot our horn more um, and louder about all the great work you guys do. So thank you, too. Well, thanks. It all pays off when we see it on the landscape for all of us. Amen. All right, Bethany, closing thoughts. I like what Steve said, and uh, I agree. I don't want to be blamed for leaving <laughs> a horrible landscape for the future. Um, it's just it's time to lean in and uh, not being not being funny. I mean, it was we all everyone or most people had such a tough year last year, and a lot of people are feeling weary and tired. And it's just like, you know, not one more thing, but I'll just ask folks like one more thing, lean into this one last thing, because so many things are coming together that make this opportunity real for the Uplands and, um, and please help us accomplish it. Well said. All right. The Tom Brady, the quarterback. <laughs> I, I don't, I, honestly, I don't think I'm going to be able to refer to you as the Tom Brady because you're a, you're a lifelong Vikings fan. Who would be your, your Vikings go-to quarterback. Oh, we've struggled at the quarterback <laughs> position over the years. Hey. It would be fun to say Brett Favre just because there's only one thing better than the Vikings winning, and that's the Packers losing. <laughs> hey, can we call him Fran? <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> All right. All right, Fran. What's your closing thought? It's, it's the two-minute drill. We're driving down. We, we need to score a touchdown, David. You know, when you look at this deal, um, you know, I think sometimes, you know, previous generations, uh, they, they kind of assumed the uplands would always be there. Um, and then, you know, as the years go, have gone by, um, we've lost those uplands. And, and the pace of loss has seemed to quicken. The last several years, and 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 that's concerning. It's scary. It's that that's why we're drawing a line in the sand with Call of the Uplands and and this ambitious campaign. You know, personally, I want to make sure my dad and my grandpa are proud. You know, you talk, uh, Bob, you mentioned Denver and Aspen, bird dogs of days gone by. You know, I think of them when I think of Call of the Uplands, and I want to make sure that we work together as a community so that previous generations will have the uplands to enjoy. 
But to, to kind of echo what Bethany said, you know, there, there's got to be some urgency here. Um, we can't wait any longer. We do need to lean in and we need to pull other people into this, into this endeavor. And um, we've just, we've got to get this done. Yeah. As I think about what this means to me, and I, I think about being a, I'm a Gen X youngster, right? And back in the 80s in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, I'm watching Saturday morning cartoons. And I can remember commercials about how how the rainforests are disappearing, right? Mm-hmm. And for folks that are bird hunters and live in the heartland of quail country and sage grouse, the sage lands and, and pheasant country, our grasslands, I mean, we, we, we said it from the outset, they're disappearing. 53 million acres disappeared, gone. No longer habitat since 2009. The size, an area the size of the entirety of Kansas. Folks, rainforests are important, but these are our backyards. These are the prairies and the grasslands where we grew up, and we want our children and our grandchildren to enjoy walking behind a Vishla, a Labrador, a Shorthair, Cocker or a mutt. We want to walk hand in hand with mom, dad, brothers, and sisters. These are the moments in the place. These are the places that create the moments that we all cherish. And it's our watch. It's our time. And this is your call of the uplands. All right, folks, in the immortal words of Steve Schaefer. Don't let this die. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of On The Wing Podcast. Go check out the website. David, the website is www.calloftheuplands.org. And if you want to learn more very specifically about how we can put make your dreams come true for your land, for your habitat wishes. D-B-U, D-B-U-E at pheasantsforever.org. And let David know you heard it on this podcast and uh, you guys will have lots to talk about. All right, folks, thank you so much for listening. I'm Bob St. Pierre saying, always follow the dog. Something good is going to rise. Thanks for listening.